I want to talk about gossip for a moment, where I talk about it in the book, is gossip is the cancer in every organization. We all do it all the time. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge, be a model, not a critic. You have got to stop gossiping. Dr. Covey calls it being loyal to the absent. In fact, what he says is when you defend those who are absent, you retain the trust of those present. Oh, wow. I, that, is, that is profound. Is, I'm going to repeat it. So please do. When you defend those who are absent, you retain the trust of those who are present. Because when you're trash talking Tina in front of Tom, Tom's thinking, huh, that's funny. How's he going to talk about me next, right? There's a person in our company who's a very respected executive. And this person trash talks everybody. And when she's doing it in front of me, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I wonder what you say about me. Because this is funny. It's kind of entertaining. And actually, you know what? It's kind of accurate about that person. But damn, I'm next. That's right. So as a leader, as a spouse, as a friend, as a human being, do not talk differently about people who are not standing right in front of you. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. This show is all about insights and explores how transformational moments of awakening have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthroughs teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. Today's guest is Scott J. Miller, Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership for the Franklin Covey Company, author of the best-selling books, Management Mess to Leadership Success, and Everyone Deserves a Great Manager and host of the number one leadership podcast called On Leadership. As you'll see on the show, Scott is high energy, unfiltered, and absolutely full of insights he's gleaned throughout his life. Just as in his books, Scott is quick to use his own missteps and tendencies as examples of what not to do when it comes to leadership. On the show, we learn how his boundless energy and ingenious ideas have actually created unneeded friction as they often take his team away from their top priorities. He shares how he's been able to overcome this challenge while revealing the importance of checking his ego as a leader. Scott also shares why he views vulnerability as a leadership competency. He tells us the reason he counts on those close to him to give him blunt feedback about how he's being perceived and why he believes there's a big difference between effectiveness and efficiency when it comes to relationships with his team members. We also learn the intriguing reason why Scott believes he's been able to have a 24-year career with the same company. He gives us his thoughts on the importance of character and what he means when he says great leaders carry their own weather. This one is absolutely chocked full of insights and I'm so excited to share them on this episode of Inside Out. Scott Miller, welcome to Inside Out. Billy, thank you for the platform. Looking forward to this. I am too. And I mentioned this when we spoke briefly, but I first found you when I was doing some research prior to my interview with Liz Wiseman. And I found your podcast with her, which I was so impressed. 
I love your show, the theme, the questions you asked were so thoughtful. I love the background with all your favorite books. And what impressed me most was the fact that you very, I would say, vulnerably shared that her book changed your life in a very positive way because you mentioned that you have some diminisher traits. I would say qualities, but we, we all know that maybe we don't want to be a diminisher. And if, and if you've read her book to the audience listening, uh, a diminisher is, is somebody that has the chance of making the people that they surround themselves with not perform at their best and not multiply themselves. So it's the opposite of a multiplier. And so I want to start there and I want to get to know you through the course of this conversation, but why don't we start with how did that insight that you got from reading her book change your life and maybe share some of the diminishing traits that you started to recognize after learning about them? Sure. I don't want to overuse this term, but I literally had a professional epiphany when I read Liz Wiseman's book. You know, Franklin Covey has the license to her content multipliers and it's in our all access pass. So at the time I was the chief marketing officer, just getting to know Liz and I read the book and it literally stopped me in my tracks because Billy, I'm 50, almost 52 right now. And I was the chief marketing officer for Franklin Covey for eight years. And I'm still a member of the executive team, but I stepped away from that role after reading Liz's book mm. because here's what I learned. When I read Liz's book, it inspired in me a greater sense of self-awareness that I had up until then been the smartest person in the room. <laughs> and that's not a compliment to me, right? It's for whatever reason, my ego, imposter syndrome, my lack of vulnerability, my insecurity, my jealousy, I felt like as the chief marketing officer, I needed to be the smartest person in the room. No one wants to work for the smartest person in the room. And when I read Liz's book, she talked about this concept of, as a leader, your job is not to be the genius in the room, but rather the genius maker. And it stopped in my tracks. I mean, here I am, an executive officer in a leadership development firm. I've been a leader of people for 20 years, and it took me until I was 50 years old to realize, I think in most days, I'm more of a diminisher. And so as I read Liz's book, Billy, I realized in my attempt to be the smartest person in the room, I had found myself, hopefully subconsciously or unconsciously, hiring people around me who I thought were not more talented than me mm. because I feared them. I feared being exposed for not being the genius that I was. So I looked back and realized I've hired good people. These are smart people. They're competent people, but I didn't think they were the best in the industry. What I didn't do as the CMO was go out and hire the nation's most competent SEO expert or the most competent Google Analytics expert or most creative designer. I hired people who were good enough, but people who didn't scare me, who mm -hmm. I didn't fear, who I thought wouldn't eclipse my skills. And as a result, I looked around and I said, I've hired good people, but I've hired people who will make me shine. And I realized, wow, my job is really to recruit and retain the best possible talent, people who are noticeably, palpably, immediately recognizable as being smarter than me in their mm -hmm. own respective areas and not being jealous of that or being intimidated, but realizing, oh no, that is my job. And my job is to let them shine and make sure everybody around me sees how smart they are. And I think I did the company, our clients, our shareholders, a bit of a disservice 
because I was so insecure. I wanted to be the smartest person in the room, the most creative, the most well-read. I sometimes confuse the idea of the buck stops with me (laughs) with I'm the buck. (laughs) So after reading that book, I didn't immediately, but in the course of the next year, I began to build capacity around me so that I could step away. It was my decision to step away. I'm still an officer in the firm with different talents. The CEO asked me to stay in the role, but I realized someone else needs to come up and the company's better off that I stepped away. So my big aha there was a leader's role is not to be the genius, but rather the genius maker of others. And it takes, I think, everyone to have a sense of self-awareness and vulnerability to realize your job isn't to be the smartest person in the room, to go find the smartest people. And you've succeeded when everybody else realizes that you're comfortable having people functionally around you that eclipse you in their skills. That took me till I was 50 years old. Hey, well, better late than never. You said something in there that I really want to unpack a little bit. And you talked about, you used the word insecure. I've seen enough of your work to recognize that you, by all observations of myself and probably anyone that watches, you have a certain air and confidence about you. Often the most confident people have an underlying insecurity that exists. Where do you think that comes from? And did you realize it first when you had this aha moment or had you realized it before? Because I think we all have some level of insecurity and different things and self-doubt and there's so many layers to this, but I'm curious if you have sort of a, a pinpoint where you recognized that that existed. I think I had a pivot point about a year and a half or two years ago. We mentioned off air that I'm from the East Coast, right? I'm from Florida and a little bit of swagger, right? Kind of the East Coast mentality and such. And when I moved to Utah, which is of course a very different culture, it's a nice culture. Nobody talks straight here, right? It's harmony. <laughs> right, right. It's Everything's utopia. fine in Utah, right? And I love that, but it's not the real world, quite frankly. So I was like a, a drunk bull at a China shop, not just a bull in the <laughs> out here. Uh, there aren't many drunk people in Utah. That's, you know, right, Utah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But, I, but what I realized is that this swagger that I had, it was masking something, right? It was masking my confidence in my education or in my skill set, being a generalist as opposed to being a specialist. And when I came to Franklin Covey, I began to realize that my perception of what is a strong leader was many ways it was warped. I thought that strong leaders were powerful and loud and charismatic and forceful and convincing and persuasive. I thought that retiring, shy, quiet people, I'd eat them for lunch. And then I came to realize, I read a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? Right. This book was co-authored by the late Clayton Christensen and Karen Dillon, two dear friends of mine. And in this book, where they take business principles and apply them to your personal life, it's a genius book, I learned that humility is born out of confidence. Confident people can, in fact, be humble people. It's arrogant people who are incapable of demonstrating humility. So the more I valued humility, the more I realized I'm a pretty arrogant person. Some of it deserved, some of it toxic. And so I think I started to better appreciate where I should draw my confidence. I don't have to be the expert at everything. My confidence can come out of, you know, EQ, can kind of being literate. I don't have to have an MBA. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. So once I realized I don't have to know everything about everything, I began to ground my confidence in certain areas and it allowed me to be more humble, 
I'm not a naturally humble person. I'm a salesperson. I mean, my two stop, top strengths on Strengths Finder are competition and significance. I like to win. I like to compete. I like the spotlight on me. I like the fame. And as I got married, I had to be a little more demure. <laughs> I had to make sure that my communication skills didn't become bullying skills to my spouse. That's something I struggle with. Rachel and Dave Hollis, who've become two good friends of mine, have really taught me that Dave can, can get into an argument with his wife and find himself, he's just in a debate, but he's ending up bullying her. He's you know diminishing her with his communication skills, his strengths. So I've learned a lot that humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. And I ask myself that question a lot in meetings, in situations. Do I need to be right or am I striving for what is right? Because they're not always the same. Yeah, no, I love that concept that you just ended on. And one of the things that you said in there is you like to win. It's clear that you have insane amount of charisma, like you said, and no doubt that any sales-oriented role or marketing-oriented role, you're going to thrive. Curious where you think that drive to win came from. Everything in life is sort of a learned behavior, but I want to get a bit deep here, man. Did you observe that growing up from your no. parents? Do you have siblings? Maybe is there something from childhood that you could draw from? Or was it a leader that you observed when you say, I thought a leader had to be yeah. loud and charismatic yeah. and all those things, which Yes, there are great leaders who are all those things, but there are also leaders, the silent, you know, sometimes yeah. the, the quiet leaders and, and they possess the most confidence. And they're also the ones that we look at with like, wow, this person just has this grace about them and they don't need to go sort of over the top with it. But I'm very similar to you in recognizing that like my default is to be the, the loud, gregarious, charismatic type of leader and not the, you know, demure, shy, kind of quiet leader. Curious if you, if you have any insight as to where that came from. Well, you can call my therapist to get the true story, but I'll share what I think was my own journey. Uh, and I don't have a regular therapist, but I probably need one. I was not raised in a, in a, in a uh, uber hard-charging family. My father was a kind of nine-to-five mid-level manager at a defense contractor. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. I was one of two boys. My brother is a very successful chemical engineer from MIT, but not as driven as I am, much more intellectually competent than I am. Very fine um, sibling. So I was not raised with a lot of drive. We had a good, strong work ethic, right? My father is a Catholic. My mother was a Methodist. So those two religious values were very deeply instilled in terms of good work ethic. And we worked hard and mowed lawns and washed cars and weeded. Mm. And I've mowed more lawns than anybody else by the time, yeah. of, time of 20. So I always had a strong work ethic. My father used to always say he had no worries about me because I had a champagne taste on a beer budget <laughs> and he always knew that I would work hard. So I think my work ethic clearly came from my parents. My drive, I think like a lot of people, I looked around and, and defined what I thought was success. I can remember one neighbor in high school. Her name is Patrice. I write about her in the book and I kind of took on her personality. She was a hard charging, brash real estate agent very successful. Two children. She was divorced. She uh, had owned her own home and owned a couple of sports cars and a big practice in town. And I tell you, I kind of took on her personality in high school and college. She represented to me what success was, not in every facet, but I think I did take on some of her personality traits for good and for bad. And then when I moved out to Utah, a little slower, a little less hard charging, a little more considerate, 
I began to kind of piece together what my own formula was, my own ingredients for the kind of leader I wanted to be. A lot of messes, some successes. Uh, I'll tell you something I did that I think that was really valuable, Billy, is I learned this principle called friending up. Mm-hmm. And I've implemented it my whole life. Some people, when they hear it, they have an adverse reaction, like it seems opportunistic. But for me, even in my teen years, I've always friended up. My friends have always been a decade older than me. I was never in a fraternity. I wasn't doing spring break. Probably wish I had now. But I was always working and friending attorneys and the mayor and the school superintendent and hanging out with people who were older, wiser, more culture, more educated, wealthier than me. And I think it took a couple of decades to assimilate what I liked from different people to form my own identity. And so that probably didn't answer your question very well, but um, no doubt the quality of leaders inside the Franklin Covey company has had a profound influence on my own character and on my own style of leadership. Well, you just, maybe you're reading my notes here, but my next question has to to do with Franklin Covey and and your long, and I'll say this repeatedly, long 24-year career there, which by today's measure, that's a lifetime, right? And so- curious, what do you attribute your long yeah. tenure to? Yeah. Like when I looked at your, your LinkedIn profile, I saw like almost three titles currently, but I know to your point that you just mentioned, you sort of stepped away from the marketing role yeah. and your door. I think now maybe doing more of the thought leader, but maybe share a little bit about your journey there. Cause clearly it's had a massive influence on you. I'm curious what you gleaned from it, what insights you've gleaned for it, but also how you've stayed there so long and yeah. why you've stayed there so long. Yeah, I've been very blessed to have been able to have nine careers inside of one organization. But I also created that. I managed my own career. No, no one did that for me. I, I had been there 24 years. I'm a dinosaur. I'm 51. I feel like I'm 31. But you know, at 51, unless you're like working for the post office or the military, none of my college or high school peers have been anywhere for 24 years. My father worked at Lockheed Martin for 32 years. Oh, wow. So I'm guessing some of that is rubbing off on me. It wasn't my plan. I didn't join the company planning to have a career here. I've uh, thought of leaving several times. I've had lots of offers, obviously, and I have lots of opportunity to leave. I haven't because, quite frankly, I love the CEO and he loves me. We fight like father and son, but he cares about me. He cares about my wife and my kids. And so there's a lot to be said for a leader that cares about you. It's hard to quit a leader who loves you and respects you and has your back and will also challenge you when you're wrong. And many a times, the CEO has taken me aside and said, Scott, I don't think it's the right time for you to leave. And he's like, you know, go to my personal life and talk Mm -hmm. about my finances. Maybe he's trying to encourage me to stay. But I mean, I'm no dummy, right? I mean, he has my best interest at heart. I have lived a couple of principles that I'll share with your listeners. One is the science shows that the average person has about a three-year kind of emotional, mental lifespan for any one job. Mm -hmm. At the end of three years, something goes off in our heads and we want to move. Not necessarily organizations or industries, but often jobs. So I think it's helpful to kind of know when does that bug go off. For me, it goes off about every four or five years. And so if you look at my resume, I was an independent salesperson for four years. I was a sales leader for about six and a half years. And then I was a chief marketing officer, business development leader for about six, seven years. And then I've been in this. So I've been able to tranche that 
But I think the first thing is to be aware of when are you kind of getting the bug? And then how should you marshal that energy inside your firm, outside your firm? But next, I think it's important to know when should you disrupt yourself? I am a master at disrupting myself before someone else disrupts me. I always leave the job I'm in about a year or two before the CEO is forced to start to have the conversation that maybe it's time to leverage your talents in a different role. You know how that goes, right? I mean, I've been very mindful. I'm quite perceptive of when my time is up and I leave a full year or two before I start to sniff out that maybe I've outgrown the job or maybe it's time to bring some fresh blood in. Not everybody has the luxury of firing themselves, right? I didn't fire myself. I started to lay plans and lay breadcrumbs about something else I wanted to do before I was disrupted, act or be act upon, right? That's right. And I think the last insight I'd share is there's a time to harvest and there's a time to plant. And I think one of the lessons that I've learned about managing careers, I think too many people harvest too soon. It's a kind of a, it's a metaphor of like a potato farmer, right? Is potato farmers will have three or four years of potato crops and then they stop and they plant a money losing crop like alfalfa mm. or something <laughs> and they lose money on it, but it puts nutrients back into the ground so that next year they can grow bigger, better, more expensive potatoes. And I've used that law of the harvest metaphor in my own career is when I get that three-year bug or four-year bug, I ask myself, is this the right time to move on? Maybe there's more to learn in this job. So I, I would encourage people, I, I don't say stay 24 years in one company. This idea of being loyal is over. No one's loyal to anybody organizationally anymore. It's not a value. It was a value in my generation, right? The average lifespan of careers now is more like 18 months. I'd ask yourself, are you harvesting too soon? Should you plant a little more? Should you learn a little more? Because a coach of mine told me this, there comes a time in everybody's career where you've given 90% of what you have to give to the company and you've taken 90% from what you can from them to you. And that last 10% either way may just not be worth it. So I'm kind of always asking myself, where am I at that 90% ratio giving and taking? And I haven't surpassed it. That's why I stay. And I'd imagine if your point on harvesting is true, then it would also be true that you shouldn't wait to plant those seeds. Oh, yeah. You got to plant them early enough so that they have time to flourish no. and grow. So I think that is clearly both would be true. You were going to say something, I think. Well, it's extraordinary advice. You know, Harvey McKay is still alive, a very famous inspirational author, thought leader. He, he's coined a term, dig your well before you're thirsty. And I love that phrase. And I like, I repeat it to myself all the time, right? Dig your well before you're thirsty. Be prepared. And, I'm, and I have a very strong network. I'm, I'm not delusional about my skills. I know where my skills stop. But I, I, I'm, I'm always taking care of myself and managing my own career. I don't turn my career over to anyone else. I also try to have a good sense of self-awareness. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Am I deluding myself? Am I in over my head? And so I think it's good advice to people to be super self-aware. Sit down and ask people, how am I doing? I think it's time for me to move on. How much more time do you think I have in this job before I've hit my peak or such? You know, if you get some good friends that you trust, it's great to have a circle of friends around you that can tell you the truth or at least tell you their truth. You know, what I love about what you just said is self-awareness, often people think it's a solo sport when in actuality, the best 
way to be self-aware is to welcome yeah. other people's vision of yourself. Yeah. They have insight and perspective that you don't have because you can't take yourself out of the equation. You're always part of the equation. Whereas they, they can look at you and, and see a lot better. I don't know anybody who's self-aware. I mean, honestly, none of us are as self-aware as we think we are, right? To your point, if you want to be self-aware, you've got to surround yourself with mature, wise, high-courage colleagues and friends that have your best interest in mind and will sit down with you and tell you, what's it like to be in a meeting with you? What's it like to work on a project with you? What's it like to go on vacation with you? What's it like to be married to you? What's it like to play tennis with you? Go home and ask your friends and family, your mother-in-law, your boss, the neighbor. What's it like to live next to you? If you ask people these questions, most of them will lie to you. But if a couple of them are courageous enough to give you sure. feedback and you demonstrate that you really want it, you will learn so much about what it's like to be your friend, your colleague, your spouse, your partner, your roommate, you name it. Yeah. And you're, to your point, you know, not everyone's going to tell you the truth or maybe they'll tell you partial truths, but if you ask enough people and if you welcome the feedback, you will get some people, again, to your point, that are courageous enough to tell you what you need to hear, maybe not what you want to hear. Sure. Yeah. And not all feedback is helpful, right? Some feedback is about their ex-husband who looks like you or their former boss who talks like you, right? So the more adept you get at distilling feedback, what to take, what to say thank you for. But when you're asking for the feedback, don't interrupt, don't dispute it, don't refute it. Just, you know, accept it, write it down. You can say, so Billy, when you see me doing that, what's going on? Am I, am I being intimidated? Am I feeling threatened? Am I in over my head, right? I mean, let down your guard, open the kimono, find some people that you trust. I mean, some great feedback is people tell me I always look angry and I'm like, I don't look angry. I'm passionate. They say, no, no, you look angry. No, 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 I'm just passionate. And then I see myself right now on camera with you. I look angry. I, I'm as happy as can be. I mean, we've got the virus going on, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm surviving. And so the more feedback you can solicit from trusted friends, man, it'll so increase your effectiveness in every role of your life. Such great advice. You mentioned a few minutes ago, and I know this from reading your book as well, that probably the biggest reason that you're still working for the same company, aside from the fact that you have reinvented yourself and found new roles, is that you have a great relationship with the CEO. There's a mutual respect there. And one of the things you share in your book is this concept called carrying your own weather. Yeah. And, and I know you mentioned that he is a, just calm. Annoyingly, annoyingly calm. So, so for the listeners that haven't yet read your book, but, but if you haven't, please go pick it up. It's just jam-packed, chocked full of goodness that Thank you. anyone who wants to lead in the way in which you can move mountains, but your people will actually love everything that you're doing to help them, read his book. So first and foremost, I want to give that, that plug to your book. And for those that don't know the title, and I mention, I'll mention this in, up front as well, but A Management Mess to Leadership Success and, you know, you poke fun at yourself throughout the book, but one of the things that you talk about with your boss, with the CEO, is that he has the ability to carry his own weather and he's super yeah. calm. So, um, yeah. love to hear what that means exactly. Sure. His name is Bob Whitman. We are the opposite. Um, he is very wise, calm, judicious, very deliberate. 
I'm very impulsive, impetuous. I love a good crisis. I thrive in urgency mode. If one doesn't exist, I'll cook one up to feel relevant and important, right? Firefighter. I love it. I love it. I mean, honestly, I, I do my best work in a crisis. Sure. And if one does not exist, I'll elevate something artificially to the level of crisis so I can feel validated. I mean, that sounds hysterical, but it's true. And I'm not the only one in the world that does that. If there's an emergency here in Los Angeles, I'm just going to come to Utah so you could <laughs> I triage and you could, I could just follow your lead. I think I wrote in the book, I've never been asked to give the eulogy at a funeral, but I'm the great person to evacuate a burning building, right? I'll get you out alive. You might need therapy, but you'll survive. You know, Dr. Covey, who's the co-founder of our firm, wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This book has sold 40 million copies for a reason. And one of the concepts of many that Dr. Covey popularized was this idea of carry your own weather. And it's this difference between proactive and reactive people. And proactive people carry their own weather. They don't give over, give up their emotional well-being to other people's moods, circumstances, nuances. Our chairman is an excellent example of someone, you know, he gets irritated, but you don't usually see it. I actually, quite frankly, I wish one day he would just drop the F-bomb, right? Because right, right, right. <laughs> sometimes in his effort to be very calm and collected, he doesn't always say what he means because Bob values harmony. He doesn't love conflict. Now, don't back him into a corner because you will lose, right? I mean, this guy is very shrewd, very smart, very principled, but he is very much in control of his emotions. He kind of acts the same when we land a eight-figure deal as he does in the middle of the crisis. And I think his steady hand is not by accident. He works hard to calibrate his emotions. He's very deliberate on not being all over the place, high and low, right? He's not a yeller. He's not a screamer. doesn't pound his fist. You know when Bob's pissed because he goes to the restroom. <laughs> and he takes a break from the meeting under the guise of a call sure. or he just he leaves the room and he's gone for four or five minutes and he comes back kind of renewed and I, and I respect Bob for that he carries his own weather reactive people they're not grounded in their mission they're not grounded in their values right they're just kind of bouncing off of the latest conflict off the latest person Dr. Covey teaches this concept that really it was Viktor Frankl that wrote about it in Man's Search for Meaning around the effective person is the person that between stimulus and response, stimulus, you know, you receiving bad news or your kids, you know, breaking your, your iPad or whatever it is, and response, how you choose to react to it, there's space between that. And you have the freedom to choose your response. You can go off on a tirade. You can spank them. You can curse at them. You can insult someone. You can humiliate someone or you can choose to ask yourself, how do I want to show up in this situation? What do I want the outcome to be? Do I want the outcome to be to humiliate them? Do I want the outcome to moralize them? Do I want the outcome to be a chance to build trust and better clarity and reduce conflict in the future? I mean, it's, you know, it's easier said than done on this webcast or this podcast, right? But this idea of carrying your own weather means that you don't ever give up or give over your emotional well-being to someone else. And it's easy to do, right? All of us confuse sometimes our emotions and our feelings with facts. The boss comes in and she walks past your desk and she closes her door and you're convinced you're getting fired today. When in fact, she and her teenage son may have had a fight half an hour ago about him vaping. <laughs> but it's important 
to make sure that you're operating your own emotional weather on facts and not on your feelings and your emotions or gossip or innuendo. Again, easier said than done. I'm increasingly asking myself, is this a fact? Did someone say that to me? Is it true? Or did I make this up in my mind, in my narrative? Am I anticipating this argument happening in the future? Therefore, I've turned it into a fact. I learned this from Susan David. She's the author of the book, Emotional Agility has an amazing TED Talk out there. She's a Harvard Medical School psychologist. I spent most of my life confusing my feelings and my emotions with facts, and I'm trying to be more deliberate and not conflating the two. You mentioned a few things in there that I'll I'll peel out. One is you mentioned the word gossip, and the only reason I bring that up is, if anything, what I appreciate most is how vulnerable you are throughout your book. You, you sort of make fun of yourself, at, I think at the beginning of the book, where you said your wife said, there's way too much of you in this short book. Yes, there is a lot of you, but where I'll say where it plays to the audience is you're relatable. If somebody has ever been one to gossip or one to react or one to go off on a tirade or one to be a certain type of leader or manager that you have identified, you've learned from your mistakes. Yeah. And it's not to say that you're going to be perfect. Nobody is. And you're, it's not to say that you're just changing who you are. You're, you're not, but you're conscious of who you are. Therefore, you can make better decisions and not always be the type of leader that is a mess. And so I want to talk about what gave you the idea for the book. Again, Management Mess to Leadership Success. The word mess is something that you even talk about how you should almost wear it with pride when you're reading the book that you have a bit of courage to open up a book that says management mess on the cover. And so I, I thought that was an interesting insight to, to talk about it from a perspective of just buying this book to begin with shows that you're courageous enough to admit that you don't have it all put together. And I don't think anyone does. So curious, sure. what gave you the idea for the book? And then yeah. maybe share yeah. what made that book something that you felt so passionate about. Thank you. I want to say three things. First, very genuinely, I want to thank you for reading my book. And as I mentioned to you off the air, I thought the diligence and time you spent into curating questions shows great respect to me. I have done a hundred plus podcast and I really appreciate you being a great host and listening and curating great questions. Second, I want to talk about gossip for a moment where I talk about it in the book is gossip is the cancer in every organization. We all do it all the time. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. You have got to stop gossiping. Dr. Covey calls it being loyal to the absent. In fact, what he says is when you defend those who are absent, you retain the trust of those present. Oh, wow. I, that is, that, it is profound. Is, I'm going to repeat is so it. so pleased. When you defend those who are absent, you retain the trust of those who are present. Because when you're trash talking Tina in front of Tom, Tom's thinking, huh, that's funny. Well, how's he going to talk about me next, right? There's a person in our company who's a very respected executive. And this person trash talks everybody. And when she's doing it in front of me, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I wonder what you say about me because this is funny and it's kind of entertaining. And actually, you know what? It's kind of accurate about that person, but damn, I'm next. That's right. So as a leader, as a spouse, as a friend, as a human being, do not talk differently about people 
who are not standing right in front of you than you would if they were. That doesn't mean you don't talk straight. It doesn't mean you don't call someone aside and give them feedback about them in private. But don't talk ever again disparagingly about anybody differently than you would if they were sitting right in front of you. It's called being loyal to the absent. It will transform your team's culture, your company's culture, and your brand as a leader. And furthermore, shut it down when you hear it. Oh, yeah. When Billy comes up to you and says, oh, man, Tom, Tom drives me crazy. He's never prepared for meetings. He always is just rattling on. You know what say? You know, Billy, I know your intentions are good. I'll bet you that would hurt Tom's feelings, quite frankly, if I heard you say that. I know that's not your intention. I really advise you, you ought to sit down and give Tom that feedback. He probably would benefit from it. And you know what? If I had the same experience, I'll tell it to Tom straight. You know, I didn't shame you. I, I, didn't, I didn't claim the moral high ground, right? I didn't rush to the front of the church, metaphorically, and sit in the front pew. <laughs> I just kind of gently directed you in a way, and I'll guarantee you, Billy, you will never trash talk another person in front of me because you know now I won't tolerate it. And eventually, you will snuff that out in an organization. I'm super passionate about this. Now to the book. I wrote this book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, because in my career, 30 years now in the leadership business, I've read literally hundreds of leadership books, if not thousands. I'm a voracious reader. And you know what? Every one of them were aspirational, unrelatable. They were Fortune 50 CEOs. I learned a lot. They were academic professors. But even as an officer in a company, which I am, they were kind of hard to relate to. I can't relate to Bob Iger from Disney, right? I mean, I learned a ton in this book. I didn't relate a lot to Jim Collins and Good to Great. He's a friend of mine. I wanted to write a different book. I didn't mean for it to be a confession or a tell-all. I just meant it to be real, relatable, and raw. Here are things that I have done that I think you can learn from. Here are things that I've said, mistakes that I've made. Nothing overtly illegal or unethical or immoral. Sometimes close. <laughs> but I wanted to be able to say, you know what? I've been on a journey. And you know what? I'm a mess, just like you. And I think there's more power in learning from your messes than from your successes. So I wrote this book because I want people to own their mess. Because you know what? Something happens, Billy. When the leader is willing to own their mess, you make it safe for everyone else to own theirs. And I saw a review on Amazon. Someone trashed me on Amazon and said, yeah, this book was horrible. I'm a hack. I just gave license to bad behavior. I, mean, I felt sad that they thought that. You know, I wasn't trying to give license to bad behavior. I don't think I defended myself in any of these stories. No, not I, at I, all. But I'm okay with that feedback, right? right Bring it on, no, right? No, Bring there's on. always going to be somebody. Oh, my gosh. There's a whole – people <laughs> troll me. You know, I mean, there's people that, that earn a living on criticizing my hair, my glasses, and calling me, you know, who cares, right? Haters are going to hate. I wrote the book because I wanted to say to people, hey, here's 30 potholes that you're going to face as a leader. And if you just spend three hours reading my book, you will step around these potholes. And here's some ideas on what to say differently and do differently. And I think it's why it became so popular and so successful because there weren't many books written from such a vulnerable point of view. And so successful that the publisher now wants me to write eight books in the whole mess to success series around marketing, jobs, parenting, communication. So I think there's oh, nice. some currency in the mess to success brand. Thank you for asking, by the way.
Of course. Well, yeah, no. And if you think about it from a branding standpoint, it could be applied to so many different things. Yeah. So it hadn't occurred to me, but now that you're mentioning it, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. The next book will be Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Okay. The third one will be Job Mess to Career Success. And the fourth one with my son will be Parenting Mess to Launch Success. I've got about eight or 10 of them in me. Because like I said, I think there is something to owning your mess. Because you know what? People like to work for people who they can relate to. Gone are the days where there's this hierarchy in companies and I can't talk to the boss about my real fears or my real problems. No one wants to work for someone like that, right? I mean, I want to work for a confident leader, but I also want to work for a leader I can close the door and say, damn, I'm in over my head on this. What do you think? Do I need a coach? Can I use some help? How am I doing? People want to connect to their leader. When a leader is vulnerable enough, which by the way, I think is a new leadership competency. It doesn't mean you confess all your sins and you wallow in your problems. No, but there is some power in hanging a lantern on your own troubles. I've done this my entire life. I, I'm a stutterer. I have a very pronounced stutter. I've been through decades of speech pathology. I've had braces twice, headgear. There are about 30 words I cannot say in public. Mm-hmm. I definitely can't say them in the cold weather. And so people have teased me my whole life around being a stutterer, right? And I have a short attention span. I find as a leader, the more you hang a lantern on your own problems, the more you will diffuse and snuff out the people who try to weaponize them against you. Bring it on, right? Yeah, I'm a stutterer. Yeah, I have a short attention span. Yeah, I get distracted. Yeah, I love a good crisis. Now let's talk about the 800 things that I crush it at. Sorry, I got excited. Oh, man. Dude, love it. Love it. My nine-year-old son's looking at me across the kitchen. He's proud of me because I'm teaching him to own his mess, right? Thatcher, my old son, he's got strengths. He's got weaknesses. Welcome to being a human, right? And love your strengths as much as your weaknesses. That's right. And you double down on your strengths and recognize your areas of opportunity, weakness, whatever you call them, don't shy away from them. If anything, like you said, shine a spotlight on them. And I love what you said about diffusing and other people might be weary or afraid to share these sort of more vulnerable parts of their personality. But I think they're doing themselves a disservice. It's true. It's vulnerability is a new leadership competency. It's a new parenting competency. There's enormous power People like people who don't have a facade, right? People like people who admit. I mean, I have a lovely home. This home was a wreck three hours ago before the cleaning ladies came (laughs) in gloves and in uh, masks, right? Because their virus is on. And we're fortunate enough to be employing them because they need jobs right now. So we're taking money away from something else and having them clean our home because they need to earn a living. And I think there's great power in owning your mess. I love that you're not looking at this as a leadership alone concept because it's applicable in so many areas of our life. And if you could provide a way for somebody that wants to advance in their career or a parent or somebody that's in marketing, give them the courage to own up to their messes. Uh, I think that's a powerful thing. You talked about relatability and, and how important it is. And one of the things in your book that, that I related to is how you found a commonality to something that Liz Wiseman mentions in her book. And that is that you are an idea guy, meaning yeah. you're, you're a creative person who has no shortage of brainchilds and ideas. And you're typically the type of person that says, yes, yes, yes. I am that same way. And so I completely relate. Always welcome new ideas, thinking of new ideas, 
but we all know that you say yes to one thing, you're now saying no to something else and vice versa. So yeah. I'm curious, that was an epiphany. That was an aha moment. Did you always know you were an idea guy or when did that light bulb go off and, and why do you think you have that tendency? I think I've come full circle in this concept. So the point you reference is that in Liz's book, Multipliers, she doesn't say you're either a multiplier or you're a diminisher. You're kind of moving in and out of being a multiplier. And I think she identifies nine different types of diminishing leadership styles that we all relate to and have some or the other. The one that I read and immediately said, this is me, is the idea guy. And this is the guy that's always offering new opportunities, new ideas. And I found myself as the chief marketing officer because of my charisma, because I'm a fairly persuasive person. I don't think it's open for judgment. I'm a fairly brash person. I was constantly in meetings saying, well, what if we did this? And what if we did that? And what if we did that? And the problem was I was so charismatic and so persuasive and quite frankly, a pretty effective communicator that I could hijack any meeting, including the CEO and the CFO. And my ideas were kind of so toxic and they seemed great on the surface. And I was big at promising results and I had a pretty good track record. I would hijack almost any meeting with five or six, what appeared to be great ideas maybe two or three of them would deliver and I wouldn't talk about the ones that wouldn't. But I realized that I was hijacking the attention and the focus and the deliberation of otherwise very competent, dedicated people and everyone was chasing all of Scott Miller's grand ideas. It was very validating. But instead of doing 17 things and each of them lasting a month, maybe we ought to say no to 90% of Scott ideas and have Scott come in and say, Scott, what is the one thing that you are convinced we should do this year? Pitch it to us and let's go spend a year doing that versus pitching six things in every meeting and now we're doing 48 things. So Jim Collins teaches us you ought to have a to-do list. You also ought to have a not-to-do list. That's right. And I think the reason my idea guy capabilities I mean, I'm a, I'm a very creative person. I think I'm a very competent marketer. I have lots of other talents. I have lots of deficiencies. I can't do a pivot table. I can't calculate net present value, right? I can't calculate currency devaluations. I got lots of problems. Creativity ain't one of them. So I had to learn that being the idea guy was my most valuable asset to the firm. It was also my biggest slippery slope on creating pandemonium and creating distraction and having funding and effort and time and energy, literally following Scott on his latest, greatest idea, and it was producing diminishing costs to the company. So what I did was after reading the book and identifying that I was an idea guy, I stopped saying in any meeting, well, what if we? If one of my peers on the executive team asked for my opinion, I would try to bring my single best idea to the table. Now, that shut down a lot of my creativity. And over a year, I found myself losing my voice a little bit, taking a bit of a backstage. I kind of think I overcompensated a little bit because mm -hmm. my best talent is being the idea guy. I just have to not, I have to be more careful in when and how much I bring to the table. The CEO would never say this, but he would say, Scott Miller is arguably one of the most influential people at Franklin Covey. Scott can get anyone to do anything. That's good and bad. I love everything you said because one, it's easy to swing the pendulum too far one direction. Yeah, yeah. It's also to 
think of this as a black and white scenario, which it's not. There's lots of layers and nuance to it because what is your greatest asset? What is the thing that makes you, frankly, most valuable to the company also could not by intention because you have all the yeah. right intentions, not intentionally, but it could harm the company because you are persuasive and you have such an innate talent and ability to get people to rally around your ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I think it became a little bit validating to me, right? Is people used to say in jest, does Scott have photos on the CEO? Cause he funds everything Scott wants. I, I don't, of course, but I began to realize, you know what, I, I was getting the biggest budget in the company and it was very validating. And as I became a little more mature, I realized, you know what, maybe operations need some of this money. Maybe innovations need some of it. Maybe we shouldn't spend it. Maybe we should just save it. So I had to step back and be more deliberate about which ideas I shared and not just be kind of a motor mouth of my next idea because my talent was really coming up with a lot of great, great ideas that were kind of intoxicating to most people. And I've had to kind of, like you said, kind of come full circle and make sure that I don't have everybody chasing everything that comes out of my mouth. Well, yeah, it's, fi it's finding that balance point. And I think you mentioned something that touches on something that I wanted to bring up, which is this concept of wildly important goals. Yeah. Because you're, to your point, what is the one thing, right? There's all these things we could do. There's a laundry list of things we could do, which by the way, hopefully you at least were writing down your ideas, even if you weren't saying them out loud. There's part of me that's like, oh, all these great ideas are, are going by the wayside. No, because no, I, 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 I had 10 more tomorrow, yeah, so right. need, no need to write down the ones today, right? <laughs> okay, so describe what the wildly yeah. important goal, because I know you do this with your teams, and it sounds like you sort of self-censor yourself to yeah. do it with what you are sharing with your peers and, and your superior, yeah. but what exactly is a wildly important goal for those that don't know or haven't heard of this concept before, and why is it such an important thing to remember? Sure. In our 40 years as a firm, Franklin Covey has sold over 60 million books. One of our number one bestsellers is a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution. And in this book, one of the concepts that we teach, one of the four disciplines is this thing called WIGS, Wildly Important Goals. I think originally we were inspired by Jim Collins. You know, of course, he co-wrote Good to Great and co-wrote Built to Last wrote Good to Great. And he popularized this idea of BHAGs, right? Big, hairy, audacious goals. Those are kind of further out. We have this idea called WIGs, wildly important goals. These WIGs are beyond what we call the whirlwind. The whirlwind is your day job. Just the things you got to do in and out of the day that you have to do to kind of keep the machine going. Beyond the whirlwind, is a wig. It's a wildly important goal. It requires someone to learn something new or do something different. It is something extraordinary. Like as in nothing else matters if this doesn't get done. If we want to create new and better results, we have to do something new and better. And we encourage people to have no more than three wigs at any given time for any division or any company. You can't do it. You're fooling yourself, right? And I think a key part of your wig your wildly important goal is how you construct it. We have a very prescribed formula from X to Y by when. From X to Y by when. We're going to increase customer loyalty from 84% to 86% by the end of the first quarter. By the way, this formula is great in your personal life, right? From X to Y by when. And once you have this goal construction down, it's very simple, very rudimentary, you then become more adept at realizing and what are the lead measures and what are the lag measures. Most salespeople are focused on lag measures, sales leaders, right? How much revenue came in yesterday? How much revenue came in today, right? 
versus what are the lead measures? How many face-to-face -face meetings do we have? How many are registered for next week's podcast, right? And it's, again, this is not rocket science, but a lot of us get focused on too many goals that aren't measurable. No one knows if they're winning. It's not visual on a scoreboard. And so all this supports this idea of the power of narrowing the focus around the few wildly important goals we can accomplish. And then as a leader, becoming extremely clear on not just what is everybody else's contribution, but what is yours. And here is what I'm going to do to move customer retention from 84% to 86% by end of the first quarter. I am going to leave the safety of my office and I'm going to go out and meet with seven clients next week. I haven't done that in four months. Quite frankly, I'm a little bit scared about it. I'm going to brush up on all of my knowledge. I'm going to take the sales director with me. You get the point, right? Is model what you want to see in your people. Don't just foist it on them and sit back and wish them well. Yeah, man. You're creating a, essentially a, a smart goal of sorts, but with very specific, yeah. tangible, results-oriented math to back it up. We're going to get into the lightning round in a moment. I have two concepts before we get into that. And the first one is you talk about one-on-ones in your book and yeah. specifically you highlight that you recognize their importance and you detail very clearly what should be some of the components of a one-on-one. -on -one. But you're also, again, going back to what I've mentioned a few times, you mentioned that it's a pothole for yourself, that you have pushed them off, that you've canceled them for a variety of reasons. There's always something that comes up. And so I can relate to this. I, in various parts of my career, I was less, one-on-ones were less sacred. Uh, it wasn't until I had a leader who told me that the one-on-one -on -one time is sacred and it will only be canceled in the case of an emergency, mm. who, by the way, he reported to Liz Wiseman at one point. So mm. question for you is, what do you say to somebody who maybe either doesn't value one-on-ones or isn't able to be consistent? Having worked at Tesla, I can tell you that there are some people that have 60, 70 person orgs. I know it sounds yeah. crazy, yeah. Um, but, but just if you were going to do a weekly one-on-one, -on -one, you, you simply can't. And that's sort of a, an anomaly. And so maybe we'll take that out of the equation. But curious, what do you say to somebody that understands there is value in doing them, but maybe doesn't see the importance of making them sacred or ensuring they do them regularly? This could be a whole podcast conversation in itself. I'm privileged to have co-authored a recent book called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. That book debuted at number three in the Wall Street Journalist, and one of the six critical practices is, in fact, holding regular one-on-ones. They're tough for me because I'm a high-energy person. I like to walk and talk. I like to solve problems. I like to see results. I don't love maintenance. I'm an explorer. I'm a hunter. I'm not a gatherer. And I don't think I've always inherently valued the role that relationships play in life. Let me tell you, this idea that people are an organization's most valuable asset, it's total bunk. It's not true. People are not an organization's most valuable asset. It is the relationships between people that are an organization's most valuable asset. Because Billy can be a black belt Six Sigma and Scott can have you know, a degree from Oxford and be a Rhodes Scholar. But if Billy and Scott can't get along, they can't diffuse conflict, they can't forgive each other, they can't pre-forgive each other for a coming slight or insult or infraction, if they can't compliment each other, we don't need them. So it's this one-on-one -on -one that is where you start to build relationships with your team because people don't quit leaders who love them. As I said earlier, right? Look at me. I'm still here 24 years. I can't quit the damn guy because the guy <laughs> loves me. 
like a broke back mountain reference, right? I mean, I can't quit him. I'm passionate about this because it's this one-on-one time where you build relationships. And here's another HR adage that's not true. Leaders do not create engagement. It's not true. What leaders do is create the conditions for other people to choose their own level of engagement, high or low. So it's this one-on-one time where you can sit down with your other team member and metaphorically, literally in your mind, you realize this is their meeting, not mine. They create the agenda. They do the talking. They schedule it. They do 80% of the talking. You do 20% of the talking. You don't interrupt. You can ask clarifying questions. You can cut through red tape. You can give feedback if requested. But this is a meeting to check in, not a meeting to check on. And that's a leadership paradigm shift. And it's in this meeting where you can understand what's it like to work here? What's it like to be on my team? What's it like to report to me? What are you fearful of? How's it going? Is that button for LinkedIn moved over that says open to opportunities? Because once that happens, you're screwed. I have learned the power of relationships the hard way. Dr. Covey taught me the difference between being efficient and being effective. He wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He did not write the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. And for me, this was a watershed because as you can tell, I'm a very efficient person. I'm very productive. I love lists, checking things off, getting things done. I get up at 3 a.m. I write my weekly ink column for Ink Magazine from 3 to 4, my books from 4 to 5. On the weekends, I'm up at 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock. I'm at Home Depot. The marigolds are in my SUV by 5.30. They're planted by 6. The car's washed by 7. The driveway is cleaned by 8. I'm playing tennis by 9. I mean, people are exhausted listening to me. Part of my success has been I've been a very efficient person. The problem is I take that same efficiency and I move it into my leadership roles and you can't be efficient with people. You can only be effective with people. With people, slow is fast. Fast is slow. So it's in these one-on-one meetings as a leader You cannot have an efficiency paradigm. You have to move to an effectiveness paradigm. Slow down. Close your laptop. Turn off your phone. Take off your glasses and check in. Or people don't quit leaders who love them. Let me ask you a quick question. It's a rhetorical question. I promise you I'll go fast. Tell me why you think the guy three cubicles down from you is eating popcorn for lunch on Thursday. Give me your best guess, Billy. Why is eating popcorn popcorn for lunch on Thursday? Because it's like going to the movies? Yeah, I mean, I get everything, right? It's like a break. He loves popcorn. He's too busy for lunch. He sits near the popcorn machine. No, because payday is Friday, damn it. There's no money for lunch. He just put his last $3 in his gas tank to get to work. There's no lunch. There's no dinner. And tonight at midnight, when the direct deposit hits, or 11.30, because he and his partner are watching it for three pay periods, they're driving on fumes to the grocery store to pick up Cheerios and milk because it's been a lean two days for their kids. This is how the vast majority of people live. Everyone's got something going on in their life. Everyone's got a mother-in-law moving into dementia. Everyone's got a bill they can't pay. Everyone's got a son who's vaping. And it's in these one-on-one meetings where you connect with your people and you understand what are their fears, what are their concerns, what are their dreams. You listen, you learn, you love. Unemployment up until a few days ago, right? Three and a half percent, it's a whole new world now. People are now gonna be hostages. 
in their organizations. They can't quit bad bosses anymore. They can't quit bad cultures. They're clinging to their job. Yeah. Now's a great time for leaders to love your people. Move outside of your comfort zone. Make sure you care about them. You will build a loyalty culture that will be unbreakable when this economy rebounds. I'm sorry I went no, sideways man. on you there, but that's it. the power of a one-on-one -on -one meeting. I love it. And I love your passion and so many insights there Two I'll highlight. You say, you know, it's to check in, not check on. And I'll add yes. to that and to not check out because often people, they check their phone. What signal that sends to the person sitting across from you or if you're, you're doing bored. it, or if you're doing yeah. it virtually and let's face it, you know, we all have attention deficit disorder in the world we live in. You True. Said, we all well do. Said. Well we, said. we all do, but block out all the noise and, and stay focused as hard as it may be for, especially for somebody like you and me yeah. who naturally have a tendency to be like squirrel, squirrel. And we're right. looking left and right. Uh, and the other thing you said is the difference between effectiveness and efficiency and you can't yeah. be efficient with people. I've never heard it put that way, but man, it's super, super powerful. We're getting into the lightning round right after this, this question. The, the, the last question I have is something that you saved for the end of your book. And that concept is the concept of why character matters. You referenced Joel Peterson. He's the chairman of JetBlue who says character is your ticket to the game. And, and basically when I hear that, what I think is it's the cost of admission. I mean, if yeah. you don't have character, all of these challenges that exist are, are kind of meaningless because the foundation is your character. So I'm curious, when did you decide that character was going to not be married to any one of the 30 you, yeah. I love how you make fun of me. Like, you're like, yeah, you didn't include it at all 30 of the challenges. I didn't. And you saved it for the end and you sort of poke fun of yourself for doing that. But what you've effectively done in doing so is you've elevated the importance and you've highlighted just how critical it is yeah. to have character. Yeah. yeah, the reason I separated it was because we've seen so many revered leaders crumble because of their character. Presidents, politicians, governors, senators, CEOs, all the scandals, right? If you're religious, your soul is your most valuable asset. Beyond that, your reputation is your most precious asset. It takes a lifetime to build it in one bad decision to cut a corner or to cook a book or to recognize revenue that's not there, to crush your reputation, right? Or one too many martinis with your receptionist or your secretary or your colleague, right? And, and here you've ruined your family and done irreparable damage to your children, your, your spouse, whatever it is, right? And so I don't mean that to be moralistic, but your character is kind of all you have. Here's why I wrote in the book. I didn't share this in the book because it would have been too self-aggrandizing. You know, I've done things I'm not proud of. I've cut corners in life. I'm an officer in a public company, so there's no cutting corners. We don't tolerate it. Dr. Covey was a man of impeccable character, and he was a true model to me. He was what you saw. It was the real deal. And when I was the sales manager, I was the general manager in Chicago for six years, and a young lady, younger than me, not much younger than me, at the time we were both young in our 30s, her name was Julie, and she came up to me at the end of a quarter in the parking lot during a fire drill. She said to me, unprovoked, you know what I like about you, Scott? She said, you don't cheat. She said, I watched you close the books this quarter. She said, you could have done lots of things to made your goal, but you missed your goal and you missed your forecast. And I spent my whole life in sales. She said, you could have done a lot of things no one would have known and you didn't. 
And it sounds like a self-aggrandized story, but it was Julie coming up to me in a parking lot and saying to me, I watched you miss your goal and miss your forecast, your commit to your sales vice president. You could have made it and you didn't. And I forgot what she said, but to me, it felt like, you know what? I didn't do it because she was watching. I didn't know she was watching, but she mm -hmm. was watching me. And it's what you do when no one's watching is your character. That's so right. I'm not without sin, but I really try to do the right thing and tell the truth and admit when I've made a mistake, make my lies as small as possible, usually you know, to defend someone's character or protect someone's feelings. It's your ticket to the game. Your reputation is all you have. It's a lifetime of growing it. Seconds of bad decision is destroyed. We see it all the time. Right. It's too, it's too much to risk. And, and you said it, right? The true test of characters. What do you do when no one is looking? How do you act? How do you respond? Right. So with that, Scott, I'm going to hit you with quick hitting uh, questions. Oh, I'm scared. For our lightning round. You should be trembling in your boots. Beads of sweat should be- Heard some money? Is there like, is there like, is it like, you know, big money on Wheel big, of Fortune? Big, big money. Big Checks money. in the mail. Checks in the mail. All right. Just give me your first gut reaction. Just short, yep. quick hitting answers short. to- these questions. The first okay. one is, what excites you? Champagne. <laughs> what excites me is seeing my three boys get along and seeing 30 years from now them being best friends. That excites me. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful thing. All right. What scares you? Snakes, sharks, and alligators. Okay. And you are from Florida. So Florida not, that's true. I'm they petrify me. Okay. What surprises you? Greed. I'm surprised how greed influences how people make decisions and treat people. I know it's true, man. And in, in, in the, the world we live in today, it's more true than yeah. ever. Yeah. So this next question I'm probably most excited about, especially because Thanks. it's you. So you've recommended a lot of books. You're a voracious reader. You clearly have had exposure to some of the greatest authors and books of all time. What book have you recommended more than any other book and why? Well, it's definitely Liz Wiseman multipliers for all the reasons that we've said. So I'll give a second one because we've talked a lot about multipliers. I'm a big advocate of multipliers. You know, Rachel Hollis, she wrote Girl, Wash Your Face and Girls Stop Apologizing. I don't know if you read her books at all. I mean, Michelle Obama is the only person who sold more books than Rachel Hollis in 2019. Girl, Wash Your Face is a book written for women, but it's super helpful for men. I think it's a great book where Rachel talks about 20 lies that women tell themselves. She followed up with Girl Stop Apologizing. And then her husband, Dave Hollis, just launched a book last week called Get Out of Your Own Way, aimed at men. But I'll tell you, to answer your question, after Multipliers, it would be Rachel Hollis's book, Girl, Wash Your Face. Okay. Good. It's a good book for husbands, yeah. good book for fathers, good book for boyfriends. My wife and I read it back and forth overnight. It's really self-effacing. It's okay. vulnerable like mine. And, and I love that you call out that men might assume that it's not for them or they won't get yeah. value, but, but it's Huge quite, value. quite the yeah. contrary. Yeah. Okay. Who has been the most inspirational person in your life and why? Oh, clearly George H.W. Bush, President 41. I spent two years working for him on his campaign with Senator Quayle. This was a man of unimpeachable integrity, diplomat, gentleman, loyal to his wife. He was interviewed by David Frost once. This man was the chairman of the RNC. He was a congressman. He was um, an ambassador to China. He was director of the CIA, vice president, president. He was asked, what is his most proud accomplishment? And he said that my children still come home to visit me. 
George H.W. Bush is my hero. I'm getting tingles when I'm talking. I got tingles. All right. I know. I, I got, yeah. You gave me tingles. So, yeah. yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I didn't even know that. It's not in your LinkedIn profile, my friend. Or maybe I didn't see it. If hey, you, who gets passionate about George H.W. Bush? I do. <laughs> no, it's, it makes a ton of sense, man. Okay. If you could spend one hour with anyone, living or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, it can't be four people? <laughs> well, you, you, can, you can throw a couple oh, in there, sure. I don't think justice has been given to what Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Pope John Paul II, and Mikhail Gorbachev did in the 80s to free millions of people from communist um, repression. Uh, the four of them worked interdependently, independently. It transformed our world. If I had to pick one of them, probably Margaret Thatcher. I named my oldest son Thatcher after her. Okay. I'm a big fan of her. She had mistakes. She had insecurities. She had wisdom. I'm an unabashed fan of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Oh, man, love it. And what a fascinating dinner conversation that would be with all four of them. The four oh, of them, yes. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Party of five. I'm a nerd. I'm a, I'm a political nerd, you can tell. Okay, I love it, man. I love it. Okay, so if you had a chance, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Stop spending your money on material things that make you look rich and famous and secure and instead save your money for long-term emergencies and to create independence. Because the more independence you have, the more you can align all of your actions with your passions and your mission. That just be repeated like over and over and over. I, I just thought the exact same thing yesterday. <laughs> I've, had, I've had a very fortunate career. I've done well for myself but I, I have not done what I think some young people are starting to do more, which is yeah. not just spend what you make, but yeah. actually save yeah. And, yeah. and invest. Don't um, talk more, I'll get depressed. Oh, dude, dude. <laughs> I'm like you, I, I mean, I'm not, on, I'm not on, on the curb, but I wished I would have been less impressed with the briefcase someone carried or the car they drove or the size of their house or thank God. God, there wasn't social media back in the 70s and 80s, right? Because <laughs> no one knew what anybody else was doing, right? Except for your neighbors. So my advice is care less what people think about you and more what you think about yourself. So true. Do you have any regrets in life and why? Okay. No, I've lived a good life. Never done any drugs. Never overtly done anything wildly illegal. I think everything's been a good lesson to me. You know, I've done my fair share of stupid things in my teens, tens, and 20s and said things today that I shouldn't have, right? I'm a little loose with the lips. I should be more judicious in what I say. But no, I think everything for me has been a, a learning lesson. I cannot think of anything that I would say, I wish I hadn't done that because there was a very valuable lesson. Even things that were not appropriate or I'm proud of, there was a lesson in it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's true with anything that we do in life that maybe we're not proud of, or maybe we realize yeah. it was a mistake. It doesn't mean that we regret yeah. it because we are who we are today because yeah. of the lesson yeah. learned as a result. Speaking of I mean, lessons learned. It sounds convenient, but I mean, I wrote a whole book confessing my messes. So I'm, I'm very willing to confess <laughs> messes, but nothing I regret overtly. That's right. And you talked a lot about various mentors you've had throughout your career in life. Is there one mentor that stands out more than any other that is your greatest mentor that you've learned the most from? Yeah, Chuck Farnsworth. Chuck Farnsworth is the vice president of the education division at Franklin Covey. I read about it in the book. He's the man who hired me into the company from Disney. Disney fired me, by the way. I talk about that in lots of podcasts. Have me back. There's some good stories there. Chuck 
believed in me more than I believed in myself. He was a long-term leader. He was not day trading with me. He was planting deep roots in me to build me from frontline salesperson to executive officer, best-selling author 25 years later. He was patient. He pre-forgave my mistakes. He had a plan for me. I didn't always follow it exactly, but he took me under his wing for several decades and was my champion when it had no benefit to him. He didn't, he, you know, there was no material, no career benefit, really. Everyone needs a Chuck in their lives and everyone should be a Chuck in someone else's mm. life. So ask yourself, who was your Chuck? Yeah. And who are you being Chuck to someone else? And your point on believing in someone more than they believe in themselves yeah. or having somebody believe in you more than you believe in yourself, you can't, overemphasize just how powerful that is. Speaking of powerful, you've had some incredible achievements in your life, best-selling author, successful podcast, radio show. We didn't get into your Disney part, but we will definitely talk about that on the next episode. I'd love to have you back at some point. My, my last guest, actually, this, this will air next week. Uh, he also worked for Disney, but I'm fully curious about your, your time at, at Disney. But let's talk about achievements and accomplishment. What accomplishment in your life are you most proud of and why? Yeah, when I was 19 years old, I became a realtor. So George Bush and Senator Quayle became the president and vice president. I was 19. I wasn't going to Washington, D.C. to work in the White House, right? So I, um, they went on, and I became a realtor as I was going through college. It was very tough for me. I was not a good academic student in high school or college. It was very hard for me, my attention span. And so I studied. I studied and passed the course by one point. You had to have a 70 to pass the course. I got a 71. And then you went on to take the state licensing exam. You had to have a 75. I got a 76. And I remember taking it at a hotel in Orlando, Florida. I was 19 years old. And you know, Florida has actually a fairly strict real estate exam. You don't just phone it in. I mean, I studied for like four or five months, went to crash courses. I remember standing in the parking lot in front of my Volkswagen convertible. You could pay like 20 bucks to get like a quick response. It wasn't official, but you could pay $20 to see if you likely passed. I remember ripping open the envelope and it said 76. I passed by one point. I was 19 years old. It was the proudest day of my life because it was a turning point in my self-confidence. It was a turning point and I did it kind of on my own. I'd studied hard. I didn't think I'd pass. I remember where I was standing to this day. That was 35 that, years ago. It had that big of an impact yeah, on you. Uh -huh. It was a big confidence builder in me. Yeah. Vivid and clear in your yeah. mind. Like Passed you by one point, which means I basically got like a C minus, right? I mean, yeah. And went on and sold a couple of homes and made some money, by the way. Uh, it is a precursor to you working for Disney and I know their, de their development and what you, what you did there to You're help right. with that's what, right. What you're working on. Thank you for knowing that. Yeah. <laughs> of course, man. Okay. So surprises are something that always intrigued me and we've learned so much about you on today's show. What haven't we learned about Scott Miller that may surprise the audience? Oh my gosh. I totally have imposter syndrome. I mean, I totally, I get on these podcasts and I'm like, you know what? Am I prepared? Am I sitting properly? And do I have my headphones on and my books and my cards? And I mean, we all have imposter syndrome. I spend a lot of time in limos, green rooms, backstage, celebrities, Fortune 50 CEOs, best-selling authors. 
you would love to see the people who are throwing up and sweating backstage before we come on to 7,000 people. I, I will never name names. Everybody's insecure. Everybody thinks they're going to be exposed. Nobody's as smart as you think they are, including me, especially me. Don't let other people's portrayal of their confidence intimidate you. What they're doing is they're just putting themselves out there. It's my best advice to everybody. Put yourself out there and take a risk. You can't have an influence on another person. You can't inspire somebody else if you don't take a risk. And so for me, the biggest thing that maybe it's a surprise is I've got imposter syndrome. I have no idea if someone's going to listen to my podcast next week. My next book's going to be a flop, right? If I'm going to talk too much on the next podcast, clearly. Check your ego. Be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. And go out there and take a risk. Man, I love everything you just said. Last question here is, what are you working on right now yeah. that is that excites you the most that, that you want to share with the audience? Or you've already mentioned a few of the, the books that you're working on. Is there anything else that you're working on right now that you feel especially passionate about? You know, Franklin Covey, like you, has this podcast called On Leadership. It's now the world's largest podcast dedicated to leadership. I interview big authors, celebrities, CEOs. Our 100th episode's coming up. I didn't know if we'd make it 100 episodes. And so we have a special guest on that. I'm reading some great books for a future guest. I'm really privileged to work for Franklin Covey and be their podcast host. So I think growing their podcast that I'm just privileged to host each week, that's probably what I'm most excited about. I'm excited about school getting back in session because these three kids need to get the heck out of this house. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, man. It's homeschooling's a, a real thing and uh, not, not easy to do. And I, I say that when I'm just feel fortunate that my wife has been uh, at the helm. Uh, Hallelujah. I, uh, hey, same here. So, same here. But, but Scott, you have been an absolute joy. I am Thank so you, thrilled to have you on the show and learn from you. I've been a sponge the entire episode and I could just hear the pencils and pens of those and keyboards typing away notes as they listen to this show because you were just a well of information and knowledge and insight. So again, thank you for being on Inside Out. Thank you. Own your mess. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out. <laughs>